Thank you. Good seeing you this morning. Good to be back uh, with you. Uh, I know you enjoyed hearing from Evan last week. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I always experience when I'm somewhere else and, and Patty and I are worshiping with another church family somewhere, it always uh, makes me mindful of what we have here and how grateful I am for you, our church family. And just uh, as I was sitting there last week, I found myself wishing that I was here with you and uh, in worship uh, with you. Uh, but it was uh, a good time. And I know you benefited hearing from, from Evan as well. I do encourage you to come tonight. Speaking of family, a uh, time of communion is always such a meaningful family time for us as church, as a church, uh, as it should be uh, throughout the church's history. Uh, one of the things that you will find always at the centerpiece of the church's history for 2,000 years is the preaching and the teaching of God's Word and the communion table. Those were the super two centerpieces uh, for the church, the early church, and is to be our centerpiece today. So I hope you'll be there uh, this evening and participate with us at 6 o'clock in Lowry Hall. I invite you to open your Bible, if you haven't already, or your smart device, to James chapter 1. We are doing a verse-by-verse -verse exposition through the book of James, which we have already found to be a very challenging uh, book to us. Uh, James speaks to real-life uh, issues. Uh, James is very practical in his message, Certainly there is theological rich, richness, but I think just in our daily lives, we find a great challenge in, uh, in the words of, of James, and, and his context is unique. Uh, among the biblical writers, he's somewhat the John the Baptist of biblical writers, of those biblical authors. Uh, he came uh, from what is called the, the uh, Anawim tradition, uh, the Anawim. Uh, the prophets in the Old Testament were part of an Anawim community. They were impoverished. These were people who were destitute had absolutely nothing. Uh, James, his mother Mary, his brother Jesus, our Lord, were certainly part of that Anawim tradition, and it had a very profound impact upon uh, James' life, uh, how he wrote this letter, how, he's how he frames life, and how he understands the life of faith. And uh, so this morning, James uh, deals with the topic. It's certainly in context with what he has uh, been saying and is relevant to what he has been saying. But James deals this morning with the issue of temptation in the life of the church. One of the, one of the most significant economic factors in the Civil War was the decision of the South in 1861 uh, was uh, an embargo they placed upon uh, the export of cotton and cotton products to foreign countries. They would later reverse that, and it was, uh, uh, it, it was, it was a nightmare. It really didn't work out the way they had planned it. But I heard a story about, uh, you know, whenever you have embargoes or something like that is being outlawed, there's always those unscrupulous individuals who are going to try to circumvent the process. Well, there was one man who uh, wanted to try to, to break the barricade, and uh, he found this uh, Mississippi riverboat captain and told him he'd pay him $100 if he would transport cotton north. And the man, the captain, said, no, I can't do that. You know, it's illegal. Uh, the guy said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 300 bucks if you'll haul it. He said, man, I can't do that. It's illegal. He said, I'll give you $1,000 if you'll transport this cotton. The man said, I just cannot do that. It's illegal. He said, all right, last time, $3,000 if you'll transport this cotton. A lot of money back then, a lot of money today. The riverboat captain pulled out his revolver and pointed it at him and said, you get off my boat right now, you're getting too near my price. Well, that's, that's the nature of temptation. Temptation eventually becomes tempting. 
And we've all been there. Uh, This idea of being tempted is the human condition. It's a malady that we all face on a daily basis. Even scripture acknowledges that. Paul would say in his letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 10, in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. So this is something that is very common to to our lives, this idea of having to deal with very real temptation. Also, I would have you know this morning before we venture further into this, that being tempted, that when you are tempted and you feel you're being tempted, and let's back up a little bit, whenever we talk about being tempted, whenever temptation visits your doorstep, uh, takes place in your mind, temptation is that is anything that seeks to distract you from performing and living out the will of God for your life. Temptation is that very thing that seeks to diminish, knowing that we are created in the image of God. Temptation is that which seeks to diminish the glory of God that that should be desired and should be shining forth from us. And so it's a part of our existence. But it doesn't mean, listen, when you face temptation, it doesn't mean that you're somehow less than spiritual. The author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews would express it this way over in Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 15, the author says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. So to be tempted doesn't mean we're less than spiritual. In fact, it means we're in pretty good company. That even Jesus himself had to deal with this issue of temptation. In fact, I think we can even make a compelling argument that there is a positive that emerges out of temptation because it's only, it's only as I am victorious, it's only as, I'm, it's, it's only as I overcome temptation, it's only as I, as I battle temptation that I'm, that I'm victorious over temptation that I can have that joy of knowing that I'm an overcomer. In Christ Jesus. And so this idea of dealing with temptation is very real. Now for James, remember James is writing to a a Messianic Jewish audience. And a great many of those in that congregation in that messianic community, they, they, they are part of the Anawim. They understand that, that they're, they're being impoverished. It's just, a part of their, their, it's just a part of their existence. They expect nothing else. The uniqueness of the Anawim is that even though they are impoverished, even though they are destitute, they have absolutely nothing. Their, their trust in God is unwavering. I mean, they have nothing else to trust. But despite their life condition and circumstances, Their devotion and their dedication to God is unwavering. But there were others in that messianic community that this idea of being being part of a disenfranchised group, being part of a group that is now persecuted, being part of what is now a minority group in their day and time, in their culture, this was something that was new to some of those. And for those, the temptations, whenever they hear, work, when they hear James write about temptation, the temptations they were dealing with were somewhat in the context that he's addressing is different from, from what we consider to be the things that tempt us. 
Because as you will see, as the letter continues to unfold, what James' concern is, the primary concern that, that James has for these people that are now impoverished, these people that are being persecuted, is they're angry. He's concerned about the temptation to become angry, to become bitter, and to react and to strike out against the oppressors who persecute them and keep them down. And what we're going to see, especially as this letter unfolds by the time we get to chapter 3 and verse 13, going all the way through chapter 4 and verse 12, what James is going to say to those who are dealing with those kind of temptations to be angry, to bitter, to be bitter, and to fight back, James says that is not the mind of God. In fact, James is going to make clear in those, in those verses, 313 through 412, he's going to say that kind of thinking is diabolical. It is counter to the mind and the heart of the God that has saved you and called you. Remember, James, the expectation we've already seen in the first 12 verses. James' expectation of us as the community of faith is that we see through our adversity, we, we see through our present circumstances, and we see the value. In fact, James says that, that we, we are at an, at an advantage James says to his audience, you are at an advantage. You are not disadvantaged because of your circumstances. Now, from the world's perspective, you may be. But listen, God, because you're able to see through this, your eyes of faith enable you to see through these circumstances, you realize that something formative is happening in your life. That God is now able, because of these hardships, God is able to use that and to fashion you into the person that he would have you to become. And it would not happen apart from your circumstances right now. If you were affluent, if you were wealthy, if you were powerful, as he's described in these, in these verses, those things wouldn't be happening to you. But you are at an advantaged position. And so even when it comes to this issue of temptation, the temptation to be angry, to be bitter, to lash out, and to fight back, listen, you have to process it differently. And one of the things we're going to discover as we begin to unpackage this, all the verbs that James uses in this passage, they're, they're, they're in the present tense in an imperfect form, but, but the present tense means that it, that it has application today. That the principles he sets forth are timeless. Yes, their circumstances were, were different and we have to span the cultural gap to deal with the things that, that tempt us, that, that we consider to be temptation. But the principles he sets forth here are timeless. What James is going to say to us is no less true today than it was 2,000 years ago. Now notice the first thing James does in verse 13. Apparently, there were some that were blaming God for their condition and the fact that they were tempted. They, and so what James is, is doing here, he begins with the vindication of God. He says, no one is to say, none of us can go this direction. No one is to say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, maybe you're, sh you're shocked to find that somebody would actually blame God. You're dealing with a temptation. You're going to say, well, uh, I don't know why God is doing this to me. No, he says that, that's, the wrong, that's the wrong attitude. That is the wrong 
mindset. But there apparently were, were those in that audience to whom he was writing that were blaming God. And as shocking as, as it is to read that, to think that someone was blaming God for the temptation they're dealing with, it's really not unfounded. You go back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12. When God, when, God, when God saw Adam and what Adam had done and asked Adam and confronted Adam, what was Adam's response? Well, God, this is your fault. It's the woman that, that you gave for me. So, God, you're to blame. What did Eve do? When God asked Eve, what have you done? It was the serpent. It's not me. Will Rogers said there were two great eras in American history. The passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. Someone has said that to err is human. To blame God is even more human. And the most difficult challenge in our day and time especially is to look in the mirror and say it's me we'll get to more of that later but James concern right now is the vindication of God that that is the wrong attitude that is the that is the wrong kind of mindset and then notice what he says in that second clause of verse 13 here here's the rationale of James no one is to say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone I mean, do, do we see the incongruity, the inconsistency of that kind of, of thinking? Sin is the very thing that alienates you from God. Sin is the very thing that condemns us. Condemns us. And so sin is not something that's evil, and sin is not something that, that God even associates with. That God would, if God, is going to, if God was going to use sin against you to tempt you, then that means God has some association with sin. James says that's, that's impossible. But the tendency, the human tendency, is to always look to pass blame. And the argument that James is going to make in the verses to come is that God, I, I can vindicate God. God is not the blame. In fact, God is the helper. It is God who seeks to rescue you. In your hour of temptation, in fact, in that passage of Scripture that I referred to earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 13, after having said no temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind, and God is faithful, Paul says, so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you are able to endure it. God desires to help us. God is not the one we blame. God is the one we look to. God will always provide for us an out, an escape, the capacity to endure and persevere through that moment of temptation. It's akin somewhat. In, in 1876, the British government passed what is prefer, referred to as the Merchant Shipping Act. And what the Merchant Shipping Act required was that on the bow of every ship, it was required to put a line 
so that when the vessel was being loaded with cargo and as the ship began to sink down into the water and poured as it was being loaded, this plimsoll line, this, this, bow, this line, this mark on the bow uh, would, would go down and when it went under the water, you knew that too much weight had been put on the boat and that it was now loaded beyond the capacity to travel safely and so uh, cargo would be removed until that mark came above the water line and now safe passage was doable the the act the legislation was named after a reformer by the name of plimsoll it's called the plimsoll mark on a ship and in a very real sense i know metaphors break down but in a very real sense what paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is that God has placed upon each one of us, if you will, a plimsoll mark. He knows what is necessary. He knows how much we can bear. He knows how much we can endure to stay afloat in the life of faith. So James begins in this issue of dealing with temptation He begins by vindicating God. But notice the next implication, and that is the incrimination of man. But each one, here's the heart of the matter for James. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, here we go. James has introduced another one of these topics that we're not going to like. That which is called personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. Now James is keenly aware that Satan is a deceiver. But the point that James is making here on this issue of temptation is that you and I cannot blame God. We can't even blame the devil. The only one I can blame is the one that looks at me in the mirror. Someone has well said that if you were to kick the person most responsible for the issues you deal with in your life, none of us would be able to sit down for two weeks. We want to blame everybody else. The boss's fault. The company's fault. The teacher's fault. The professor's fault. The cop's fault. Campus security's fault. It's everybody's fault but the one in the mirror. It's like the two old boys that were on their lunch break on a construction site. Lunchtime came, one fellow opened up his pail there, and as soon as he saw the contents of his lunch box, he said, man, I can't believe it. Another bologna sandwich. I can't believe another bologna sandwich. This is four days straight of bologna sandwiches. I am sick of bologna sandwiches. His buddy said, man, he said, you know, it's really not that big a deal. He said, I think if you would just have a talk with your wife and tell her you wanted something other than a bologna sandwich, I'm sure she would accommodate you. He said, my wife, he said, I fix my own lunch every day. That's what James is saying. James is saying we're responsible for all the baloney in our own life. 
But we're living in a day and time in this Western culture where the idea of personal responsibility is a foreign concept. We're looking for a person to blame, an institution to blame. We're looking, we're looking, you know, call it, call it a disease. Call it a disorder. But don't call it personal responsibility. Heard about an old boy, went to the doctor's office, did his physical annual exam. Doctor ran a battery of tests. Doctor comes back into the exam room. Patient says, Doc, he said, shoot, shoot it straight with me. He said, just tell me the truth. I can take it. I want to know everything up front. Doctor says, okay, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you except you're just lazy. And he said, okay, can you put that in medical terms so I can tell my wife? <laughs> there are diagnosable disorders, but what the masses need is not another diagnosis. They need a divine intervention. They need a keen awareness of the holiness of God that we as human people, we are not puppets on genetic strings. Saying I'm born that way is never an excuse. We are not puppets on genetic strings. We are different than the animals in the field. We are created in the image of God. We have the capacity to make choices and decisions about what our life is and what our life is becoming. So James makes it clear, even in an incriminating tone, that man is responsible for this matter of sin. And the reason that is so significant, it's a crescendo that is being built by James here. It is so significant, this idea of self-incrimination, this idea of personal responsibility, because James now talks about the repercussion of sin. He says in verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. What James describes here is just the opposite of the new birth in Christ Jesus. The new birth in Christ Jesus is committing one's life to Christ, realizing that he is the Son of God who died for all humanity. He died for the redemption of the world. And that this idea that that he has died for us brings us to a place of accountability and and responsibility in our lives. It is the opposite what he describes here in his passage in verse 15. As the new birth leads to life, as, as conversion is accomplished in our life and we begin this path of becoming everything and all that God would have us to be, this process of growth, maturity, sanctification, when it has run its course, its end is eternal life. A life that manifests itself even here and, and now. And now James says, I want you to see the repercussion of sin because it is just the opposite of the new birth. That if this process is not aborted, what sin desires to do in our lives, to destroy and corrupt that which is made in the image of God, to suppress the glory of God that dwells in us, when this is allowed to go to full fruition, when this gets rooted, 
if the cycle isn't broken, if the process isn't aborted, the end is death. And this is where the good news of the gospel becomes significant. Because the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that he is the only one, the only thing that can, that can stop that process, that will destroy that process, so that you and I might become new, a new creation in Christ Jesus. It happens when you and I say, and we determine, I no longer want to be a slave to sin. I no longer want to be a slave to my own, my own intuitive desires and, and longings. Now the desire of my heart is to be enslaved to Christ Jesus. And to following after him, Jesus would even use this same language. In John's gospel in chapter 8 and verse 34, where Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. We must grasp the repercussion of sin. In the Western culture, sadly in the Western church, we have somehow lost our understanding of the magnitude of sin, the implication of sin. We assume that because sin doesn't bother us, that it doesn't bother God. There can be no more deadly assumption. Because here's the significance of this, in knowing the magnitude of sin and the repercussion of sin. It's only when you have that, that understanding of the magnitude of sin. Listen, this is why Paul said to the churches in Ephesus, remember when you were without hope and without Christ in the world? Listen, that's one of the benefits, of, if there is a benefit, to coming to Christ later in life as a young adult. I remember what it was to be lost. I remember what it was to be without hope, without Christ, to be purposeless in life. I remember what it was just to exist day to day with no sense of meaning and purpose in life. And when you have a grasp on the magnitude of sin, it's only then that you ever grasp the need for a Savior. So as long as sin is nothing to you, then nothing will ever attract you to the grace and the redemptive mercies of God. Here's a final thing James alludes to, which is kind of putting a neat bow on all of this. Having talked about the vindication of God and the incrimination of man and the repercussion of sin, Paul, James now discusses the restoration of all. That is the restoration of all things. And again, what he's trying to help that, that, that congregation to understand, he's helping them to see things in a different perspective. To understand what it is of which you're a part as a people of God, as a community of faith, a distinctive people. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers 
and sisters. He's weaving himself in among them. Do not be deceived. There is more at work than meets the eye. There is more at work than your present circumstances that are so debilitating, that are so discouraging. Every good thing. In contrast to God being blamed, he now points him to the right attitude to have about God. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, that is according to his providential purposes, which will never be thwarted, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Going back to verse 16 again, there's things going on. Listen, you're struggling, facing adversity. You feel like going back to your old ways. You think you're entitled to go back because life is hard. And you can't rationalize what, what God is doing. And he says, don't, don't be deceived by, by these present circumstances now, these present circumstances and that's all they are present circumstances and listen these are circumstances that will change circumstances will change with either time or death and that's what James is pointing them to in reality is their circumstances will change in death their circumstances were not going to change over the entirety of their lifetime. For very few would their life circumstances change. But he says it's imperative that you recognize God is doing something so much bigger. That God is doing something, that something eternal is at stake. Something eternal is at stake in how you respond to the circumstances of life. And how you interpret it, it's up to you. And he says here in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, God is exercising his will one, one way, in the exercise of his will, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among the creatures. This goes back to a proper understanding of salvation. As I mentioned in our study in the book of Romans, one of the great tragedies of the Western church, especially in the evangelical tradition, is we've taken this wondrous uh, concept of, of immeasurable magnitude, the salvation of God, and what is meant to be the redemption of the entire created order. That's when the scripture speaks of salvation. It's talking about the redemption of the entire created order. That all of this being made right. But we've made that term salvation. We've reduced it down to this, not surprisingly, this little selfish idea of me missing hell and making it to heaven. Now that's a part of it, but it's just a very infinitesimal part of the much larger work that God is doing. And what James is saying here in this final passage in the exercise of God's will, 
He's saying that you and I, us today, that you and I, in the midst of our difficult circumstances, that you and I are the first fruits of the much greater work of salvation that God is accomplishing in the entire created order. All of creation, Paul said in Romans, all of creation groans, awaiting the day of the Lord, awaiting the day of redemption. But until that time comes, you know how the world sees redemption? It sees it in me and it sees it in you. How you respond to adversity, how you respond to this temptation to be angry and bitter and to strike back at your oppressors. Responding in faith, you're the first fruits of what the world sees when it comes to understanding the redemptive purposes of God. And as all of this was a part of the exercise of the will, so it is for you in dealing with temptation. It is an exercise of the will. That's all it is. You are empowered to escape. You are empowered to resist. Set yourself up for success and not failure. It's your choice. And it's not just about right now. Something eternal is at stake in how you deal with temptation. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word continually reminds us of how you are using us in this world to reveal your purposes, to make yourself known. That if the world is to see your redemptive possibilities, that they must see in us a redeemed people. A people who are not passing the buck, the people who, on the other hand, embrace personal responsibility that you have empowered us to live as victors, that we need not take on the personality and the tendencies of the culture, tendencies of weakness, tendencies of victimhood. But you have called us and empowered us to be so much more and to show so much more of who you are through our lives. And Father, might this be evident in our daily lives in how we live and how we exercise this free will of choice that you have entrusted to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.